On The Go podcast is brought to you by The Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.thesanctuarychurch.com. Um, so this morning we're going to continue in our series about emotionally healthy relationships. This is such a key piece. Uh, relationships, relationships, relationships. Got to get this thing right because it affects us all. Well, today I have a guest speaker for us who is a longtime relationship, but I want to just kind of give you a little background before I ask him up. His name is Jim Scott. And um, if you ever thought, who in the world allowed Pastor Marty to take a pulpit, we can blame Jim Scott. So that yeah, that's it. We can blame him, right? So here, here's what happened. I I was ha- uh, I was here. I was a youth pastor. I got here in 1989. I was a youth pastor, and I was working uh, at the youth office downtown at the at our at our headquarters downtown. And um, uh, our senior pastor stepped away, and I had an appointment with our supervisor. And he said, "Hey, are you, do you feel like the Lord wants you to do this?" I said, "Actually, I do. I, I feel like I'm supposed to do this." Um, and he said, and he said these words. He's, we're sitting, sitting in just a couple chairs. He said, are, "Are you sure? Are you sure you feel like this is what the Lord wants you?" To? Oh, I am sure. He goes, "Okay, because I'm going to be here in five years from now. I'm going to be here in ten years from now. When you want to quit, I'm going to remind you that that's what you told me. You told me the Lord wants you to do this thing. So I just want to remind you that that's I'm going to be here to hold you to that." one. I'm like. Oh boy, I'm in trouble now. So that's why you can't get rid of me because he's always threatened to come and remind me that this is what the Lord told you to do. Would you please welcome Jim Scott for me, please? Thank you, my brother. Thank you, my friend. Wow. You do know you have extraordinary pastors. Are you aware of that? If you aren't aware, let me uh, say it. When Pastor mentioned that to me today, and I, I remember sitting there with him, I remember where we were, I said to you exactly where we were sitting, um, I'll be 70 next month, and you look back on your life from the prospect of being 70, and you think, how many decisions did you make that were good and not so good? How many do-overs do you wish you could have? I want you to know you have never been a do-over. I have always felt good about what God is doing through your pastors. You and Debbie are just wonderful people. And what a leadership team. What a leadership team. Hallelujah. Uh, Years ago, I heard a statement, doing what Jesus did. It ended up becoming a bracelet that people wore, and it it was something that became in the church a big deal. And the first time I heard it, my first thought was supernatural. In fact, this picture that I've got here, I want you to take a look at. Uh, This is stretcher day at the Denver Revival for Amy Simple McPherson in July of 1921. This is two years before the dedication of Evangelist Temple. She's doing one of her revivals, and during her revival, she invited the hospitals to bring the most desperately ill people to the service so she could pray for them. Now, Now, this picture, for me, is incredibly challenging. Because the first time I saw it, I knew I could not do that. I felt it. I, 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 I don't even know today if there's a pastor. I don't know a pastor that would contact the hospitals and say, would you bring your really, really sick people? Would you lay them on the floor on a Sunday morning? Because I want to pray for sick people. And the testimony in the Denver newspaper after this service was that many of the folks you're looking at got up and left rejoicing. 
God did an incredible thing through this woman. And that's what I always thought about doing what Jesus did. My head would go to this, walking on water, casting out demons, raising someone from the dead that was four days dead. That's a good raise. When they stinketh, you've got something working for you. And as I reflected on it over the years, I thought, well, maybe we should adjust it a bit. Maybe we ought to do everything Jesus did. But particularly in the season that we're living in now, that's become important to me, and about emotionally healthy relationships. You know, Jesus met scores of people. In the Bible, we have lots of encounters Jesus has with people, individual people, small groups of people, religious leaders. He talks to 5,000, he talks to 10,000, he's in the temple, he's talking to people. We don't even know who they are. We just know he's speaking, people are listening to him. There's a lot we can learn from Jesus about relationships, how he treats certain kinds of people. For here, here's a freebie. The only people that get really harsh words from Jesus are religious people. So that's just good for all of us who think we're religious to remember when we see Jesus, he might have something to say to us. That's, uh, that always keeps me on the, on the straight and narrow. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. I, I want to read this passage. This is the calling of Matthew. Now, if you read this in Matthew, it's the calling of Levi. Matthew had two names. He had a Roman name because he was a tax collector. And so he had a name facing toward Rome, which was Matthew. He was a Jew, so he had a Jewish name, Levi, and that was the name he used facing uh, Israel. So he lives in a world, a netter world between two people. And it's not an easy place to be. It's never, it's never easy to be a bridge. It's never easy to sit between. But he is sitting between two very powerful forces. A Roman occupying government and the people he represents. So it's a tough place. It's a really tough place. This is Jesus calling him into, to follow him. And listen to what happens here. Beginning at verse 27 of, of uh, Luke chapter 5. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And so he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast at his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and their Pharisees complained against the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, those of you who are well, notice who he talks to, those of you who are well, scribes and Pharisees, those of you who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, those who are sick, they need the physician. And then he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now he's not claiming that these scribes and Pharisees are righteous, he's saying they're righteous in their own mind. That is the danger, incidentally, that you might think you're better off than you are. You might think more highly of yourself than you ought. You might think your life is perfectly ordered when it isn't. That's a very dangerous place to be, not to be introspective, to be reflective about your life. And these men in this meeting certainly are not. When I was studying this passage and considering it in light of doing everything Jesus said, I was interested in how this happens. How did Jesus call this guy? Because this has nothing offering that makes sense to me about calling him to be a disciple. The first thing I noticed was the call to become a follower of Jesus does not discriminate. It does not discriminate. And there does not require cleaning up first. I don't know if you noticed this, but the Bible says, notice it now. He saw a tax collector sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, I would prefer this to say, if I could rewrite this, I, hey, Jesus was in the mall, walking down the mall, saw someone and invited him to follow him. 
I would prefer that they were in a restaurant together, eating, and he looked across the aisle and saw him and said, would you like to follow me? It distresses me that he's a tax collector sitting in a tax office, and that's the one he calls to follow. And the reason it distresses me is that there needs to be more conversation before you start following. What, what first occasion Jesus to even make the invitation? Well, I think you would agree with me today that um, Jesus would practice what he preached. Can we agree that that would be true? And would we agree also that the harvest is short of laborers? Would we agree? And would we agree that we're supposed to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into the field? Which means Jesus has probably all through his ministry been praying to the Father saying, who should I call? Where are the laborers that I can send into the field? And I believe that is what occasioned him to walk past this tax office and see a very unlikely disciple sitting in that tax office, a man named Matthew. And he says, follow me. And it reminds us of three things here, things you might want to put in your mind. First off, laborers come from the harvest. I want you to to think about this. Laborers come from the harvest. They don't come from outside the harvest. They have to first be harvested before they become a harvester. So we all have come from the harvest. That means everyone you talk to who's unharvested could become a harvester of people for the kingdom of God. Secondly, laborers don't look like what we might think a laborer looks like. I mean, none of us started to where we are today. Wouldn't it be delightful if we could pull up all our pictures from when we first met Jesus and just a paragraph of what our life was like at that moment? Wouldn't it be wonderful for all of us to read about each other? That person did that. That person did what? That person was where? That is the truth about all of us. We all have stories that precede our coming to Christ. And now you look at us all cleaned up. You look at us with a lifetime of ordered service. You're no longer shaken because of the alcohol. We're no longer craving the drugs. We're no longer living the lifestyle. And we look so put together, not realizing that when you're out looking for laborers, they're not finished yet. You're going to be talking to people that don't look like a laborer. The third thing this suggests to us, that we're called to make disciples and participate with the Holy Spirit in developing them into laborers, which means that when they come to us all broken, we get to be part of the process of restoring them and bringing them to service. All of that is taking place with a tax collector. Now, let me show you what we had to work with. Tax collectors were publicly despised people. They were reviled in their culture. If you've been watching The Chosen, when, when Matthew was first introduced, they, they, they introduce him fairly. Nobody likes him. The Jews don't like him because he's a traitor serving Rome. Rome doesn't like him because he's a Jew. And he gets to get up every morning facing that. One scholar wrote about tax collectors this way. He said, these tax gatherers were usually Jews and would collect taxes for Rome. And it was understood that they were to keep a fraction, quote unquote, for themselves. But there was really no way to prevent that fraction from assuming great proportions. And in fact, fraudulent extractions were encouraged. Although there were some honorable exceptions, the tax collectors, great and small, were really extortioners. The Jewish people were outraged by them, regarded them as traitors and apostates, and they were considered defiled by their constant contact with Rome. That's this man sitting in this tax office. Now, if I were thinking about picking a disciple... If Jesus would have called me, Jim, I'm having some thoughts. The guy, Matthew, I would have said, you don't have to start there. You can, you can, you can start better. You can start better than there. Because I, we want to really understand here that we might admit we're not always good. We might even be willing to admit that we're sinners. But Matthew was wicked, corrupt, a robber, despised, 
And yet, before he prays a prayer of repentance, before he gives any explanation for his life, before he ever admits he's wrong, Jesus says, follow me. Now, if you're an evangelical, that should really bother you. Because see, we have, we have closeted our faith within this punctiliar moment of receiving Jesus. We, we think about getting saved as getting saved a moment. I got saved in March of 1974 in Fresno after watching the movie The Exorcist. That's how I got saved. And if you were to say to me, when did you get saved? I would say in Fresno, Fresno State University, in the United Arts Theater after watching the movie The Exorcist. That's how I met Jesus. There's a moment. We don't realize, we don't think about the fact that before that moment, God is doing stuff in our lives, getting us ready for the moment. You can start following Jesus before you make a decision. That's what this is teaching us. We don't hear Matthew getting up saying, oh, right, you're right, Lord, I'm a tax collector, please forgive me. There is no prayer, there is no nothing. Matthew, follow me. In fact, as I looked at this passage, it occurred to me he only had three obligations. He had to hear Jesus, he had to say yes, and he had to obey. Now, it's not easy to hear. The gospel's being preached today all over this country, and millions can't hear it. So hearing is not an easy thing, but he had to hear him. He had to hear Jesus' voice. He had to hear it and understand it. Then he had to make a decision. He does make a decision. He says, yes, I'll follow you. But it doesn't at all address his sin. Yes, I'll follow. Yes, I'll follow you. And then he leaves all, which shows his obedience. That Jesus, in some amazing way, is more important to him right now than everything that he has. So Matthew left all, rose up, and followed him. The second thing I noticed here was that a response to follow Jesus is a lot like fishing. Finding one new follower suggests there are more potential followers around him or her. Because we see as soon as he starts following Jesus, what does he do? He throws a party. And who does he invite? His tax-collecting friends. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone fishing and found that hole. If you've ever fished a stream, you know what it means to fish a hole. You walk down a stream, you see a nice little pool, water coming in, water leaving... You throw your line in there. If you catch a German brown in that hole, you don't leave it. Because if there's one fish there, there's another fish there. I learned this in an embarrassing way. My pastor, who I thought loved me, saw me fishing, came up, said, how you doing? I opened my creel and said, look, a German brown. He goes, wow, you caught it. Go ahead and go. So I start down the river, and I'm fishing, fishing, not catching anything. My pastor catches up with me. His creel's full. I said, where'd you get all the fish? He said, in that hole you left. Fishermen are terribly deceptive, with all due respect to those here who might be fishermen or fisherwomen. Um, what's intriguing about this, if Jesus is okay with sinners following him, his feeling is the best place to be is with sinners. Um, you know sinners love to go to a feast. That's part of our problem with sinners. They love to party, and sinners know lots of other sinners who like to join them. It's intriguing to me that Jesus had no problem being at a party like this. In fact, this is, the scribes and the Pharisees are at this party, and they ask this question. Notice it there in verses 29. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, what's funny about this is that we're talking about the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who knew no sin, the one who's Emmanuel, God with us, at a party that most of you and I would never go to. 
That's what's interesting to me about this story, for me, personally. I work not to go to stories uh, to parties like this. If I get invited to this kind of party, I don't go. Who's going to be there? All my druggy buddies. I will be busy that day. We haven't picked a date. Doesn't matter. Pick a date. I'm busy that day. I can't come to this party. Yet Jesus, after allowing one sinner to follow him, when he says, I got more sinners I, I want to party with, Jesus says, I'd love to be at your party. I would love to go there. I'd love, I'd love to sit with you. It was uncomfortable for me. Is it uncomfortable for you to think about this? That God, Emmanuel, with us is at a party filled with sinners, and the Pharisees see them and says, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, what's ironic is the Pharisees are there too. And that is, incidentally, the definition of Pharisee. The definition of a Pharisee is a person that tells you you're doing wrong while they're doing it with you. That would be the Pharisee. It's intriguing to me that he asks this question. And please see this. Please, I beg you to see this. This is critical. These men were not questioning the menu. They were not asking about the food he's eating. Like, oh, you're eating lobster, and check Leviticus out. We're not supposed to be eating lobster. They're not talking about the menu. They're not questioning Jesus' behavior. Jesus, you're sinning. You're doing sinful things. You say you're the Messiah. They don't question menu or behavior. They're questioning motive. Why are you here? So intriguing, Jesus reveals his motive and his mission. He says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So who are the well and the sick, the righteous and sinners in this response? Who needs a physician and a savior? That's what he's saying. Whoever needs a physician and a savior, that's where I am. I'm the physician. I'm the savior. If they need it, that's where I should be. I was thinking about this in actual real practice of a doctor. Someone goes to, wants to be a doctor, a medical doctor. They go to four years of college, undergraduate work. They do medical school. They do residencies and internships. They do specialty training. 12, 13, 15 years down the road, they get their license to, to practice medicine, and they open up their office. And you're their friend. You go visit them to congratulate them. And when you walk in, the waiting room is empty. And you say, well, things aren't going well. Oh, no, no, no. I don't let sick people come here. <laughs> well, why not? Well, I don't want anyone to think I'm sick. People are going to think I like sick people. If, if, I, if, I ha, if I let sick people come in here, people are going to, the rumor around town is going to be he hangs out with sick people. I don't want that to happen. I don't want people to think I like to deal with people with cancer. And No. And you would say to them, right, you would say, are you kidding me? You're the person with the answer. You want the sick people to come. Because hear this, healing only happens up close. Healing is a contact sport. It is, you got to be close to heal people. You can't heal a mile away. you got to be close. It, it, it refers to my thinking about outsiders and insiders. The longer we've been an insider may affect our compassion, love, and urgency to reach those who are outsiders. You know, Peter talks about being a non-believer as eating vomit and playing in the mud. That is a very good description of my, my life before Jesus. But you know, when you've been a Christian since March of 1974, you forget what vomit tastes like. And you're not in the mud anymore. And so when you see people with vomit on their breath and mud on their skin, something is lost in the compassion because we forget that that's where we were one day. You know, it's the Pharisee who stands with his hands prayed. You know the story. And the person kneeling next to him, he says, oh God, I thank you. I'm not like him. Because I tithe and I fast. And 
And the church is filled with people that aren't like them anymore. We're not like them anymore. They struggle with identity issues. They're struggling with drug issues. They're struggling with alcohol. They're destructive in their own behaviors. They're struggling in their marriages. But that's not us. We, we, we lose it. We, we lose it. Insiders and outsiders. I don't know if you, you remember, but the Apostle Paul talks about hanging out with the outsiders in, in, in an amazing passage in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-13, through 13, this is what he says. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Doesn't that sound like something Paul would say? I'm with him. I wrote you not to, in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. So yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. Look confused. It's okay. Because you immediately should say, well, who else is there? He's going to tell us. I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the extortioner or the idolater, since you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to judging those who are on the outside? Do you not judge those on the inside? But those who are on the outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. What he's saying is, your whole point is to keep company. That's what he says. He says, keep company. But he says, you're supposed to keep company with the people of the world. You're supposed to avoid, like the plague, the so-called brother who lives this lifestyle. And yet I see churches and pastors and ministries. I've been, I've been in this a few years that celebrate the sinning Christian, that lots of room for sin in the church. And yet those are the people Paul says we're to avoid. It seems that relationships, what we've been talking about here, it seems that relationships of various kinds are essential for the sharing of the good news. And for it to be understood, experienced, and received, you have to be with someone that they can see it. This is so important for us. In Paul's words, the followers of Jesus have to find ways of keeping company. And if we can't keep company, they won't know. Now, I'm, I'm preaching as if I mastered this, so I need now today to out myself. And I need to give you the context of my life before I tell the story so you understand how really vile I am. I was the director of Foursquare Missions. And you would think the director of Foursquare Missions would get what I'm about to say. I'm living in Manchester, New Hampshire. When you're a missions director, you travel everywhere so you can fly out of any airport so I could live in New Hampshire, work out of Los Angeles, and visit 78 countries of the world. Next door to us is a South Asian couple, medical professionals. Down the street, there's a Chinese woman. There's a Nigerian family. And the reason I'm describing them that way to you is when the real estate agent would bring people on our street to sell a house, they would point at each house and tell them who lives there. And so they say, these are the Nigerians, this is the Chinese, this is South Asian, these are the religious people. That's who Melinda and I were. We were the religious people on the street, which I'm not happy with, but if it starts a conversation, I'll take that as the beginning point. And he invites us to come to his Diwali Serve, uh, uh, celebration, which incidentally is today. Today is the beginning of Diwali. So this is my anniversary of my failure. And so Melinda comes to me and she says, the neighbors next door invited us to come to their Diwali party. And I said, well, I'm not going. And she said, why not? And I said, it's Diwali. It's, it's the Hindu and South Asian and some Muslim and Bangladesh. It, 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 it's a celebration of, of light. Listen to this. The celebration of light over darkness 
of good conquering evil. And of course, that would not give me any opportunity to share. So since I wouldn't be able to share, why go? No, I didn't say that, but you see where the story's going. Well, Melinda says to me, I'm going. And not only did she go, she dressed in the most beautiful Indian sari I, I knew she had. I mean, it was incredible. And she waved goodbye to me without another invitation. She went next door, and I'm standing, true story, in the second story of our house, looking at the house next door where they are, hearing the laughter, and I'm standing there in my sweats and a t-shirt. And they're partying. So three hours later, Melinda comes back. I go, well, how was it? She goes, oh, it was incredible. Huge table of food, South Asian food. It was amazing. Huge table of alcohol. Those people can drink. She says, Jim, it wasn't religious at all. It was no more religious than Christmas is in most houses in America. And now I'm starting to feel it. Well, what, what, what did you, who did you meet? What did you talk about? She goes, you're not, it's amazing. They're medical professionals. So most of the people there were in, the, were in medicine, dentists, doctors, pharmacists. They would, they would come to me because I was one of the few Caucasian people there, and they would say, who are you? How do you know them? Neighbor, oh, what do you do? What do you do? And Melinda said, well, I'm a pastor. And they said, you're, you are, you're a pastor? You're a woman. You can be a pastor? How do you become a pastor? What does a pastor do? And now you're in the church, right? So you, you're Christian. What is Christianity like? I mean, what, how, does, how, does it, how does it work with Christianity? And she spent the entire night moving from couple to couple, person to person, introducing herself, them finding out she's a pastor, and them asking questions about what pastoring is. And I began to weep. Because my own darkness would not let me keep company as the director of missions of the Foursquare Church. This affects all of us. It affects all of us. It seems that our mission is not to judge the world, or rather those outside. That's God's work. It seems that the followers of Jesus are to judge those inside who are so-called brothers, and we're to be witnessing to the outsiders. So doing everything that Jesus did. I, I know you know this, but I want to teach you perhaps a take you aren't aware of, because it's not always talked about. You know that Jesus was called a friend of sinners, don't you? You know that? But do you know the context of that? It's found only two times in the Bible, Matthew 11 and Luke 7. And in both contexts, Jesus is describing how people mocked him. They're not saying Jesus is a friend of sinners like, wow. They're saying he's a friend of sinners. He hangs out with sinners. It was a mocking. It was disparaging. They were criticizing him. And it occurred to me when I read that, that maybe that's why we don't like hanging out with outsiders. We don't want our friends to be upset with us. I thought about that. I thought, what would they think about if you had gay people come over for dinner at your house? What would the Christian friends you have? You had a transgender in your house? Democrat? You were with a Democrat? In your house? With the door closed? I mean, my mind, you know, forgive me, my mind just kind of went for it. Jesus was a friend of sinners in that he came to save sinners and was very pleased to welcome sinners and be with sinners and to hang out with sinners who were open to the gospel, sorry for their sins, and willing to put their faith in him. He wasn't hanging out with sinners to hang out with sinners. He was there because he's a doctor, and doctors got to be around sick people, and you're not going to get sick people to come into a church. More people will drive by this building today than come into it. So, so how do we get to them? Well, we've got to go keep company with them. That's what he seems to be saying. 
Now, I, I agree. There, it may be that there are some requests, demands, or beliefs it's hard for us to keep company with. If you have a problem with alcohol, you should not be sitting in bars. If you have a problem with drugs, you need to guard yourself in that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't a blanket strategy. I'm simply saying, if you can't sit in a bar, sit in a Starbucks. It is addictive, but differently. <laughs> that, that we would begin to realize that they're not going to get saved magically. They've got to touch the gospel, and we are the gospel to them. We must be committed to find ways to do what Jesus did for the reasons he did it. So he says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So let me ask you, who's waiting in your waiting room? Who called you and needs you to do a house call? That, that's what practical side of this is. I was looking at the Campus Crusade, now called Crew, website, and they have a thing called Matthew parties. I thought this was amazing. Here's what they say about it. You can create a non-threatening environment where Christians and non-Christians can gather and have fun together. This casual atmosphere can knock down some of the barriers and stereotypes non-Christians may have toward Christians. A Matthew party. We could have Matthew parties. And maybe being a friend of sinners has some application to our world of perceived enemies and persecutors. It seems today that Christians, in many ways, are more concerned about being friends with those who are Democrats or Republicans or have certain political views or certain social views, have certain kinds of, of, of aspirations or certain kinds of commitments, and they call them enemies. They, they are enemies. It sounds to me like enemies. I've heard pastors from pulpits tell people you can't come to this church if, and they finish the sentence. I, as a pastor, I don't understand that. Why would you ever tell people not to come? And why would you make it hard for anybody to come? Because if they are sinners, where do they need to be? they got to be with somebody that knows Jesus. I've been thinking about this in a deep way in my own personal life because I've lost family through all of this. It's very personal for me. I've lost friends through this. That people that trusted and loved me for decades don't love me anymore because of certain views that I have. I don't understand. So, so, it was so interesting. The Holy Spirit took me to Ju Jesus and, and Judas and the washing of the disciples' feet. I don't know if you're familiar what took place there, but Jesus clearly loved, prayed for, and served his enemies. L listen to, to I mean, select verses out of John 13. John 13, 2. And supper being ended, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So the chapter begins with Judas being possessed. This is clear. It doesn't happen after the foot washing. It's already happened. Judas and the devil are in a bargain. Verse 12. And so when he had washed their feet, taking his garments, he sat down with them. And he said, do you know what I've done to you? Judas is in this meeting. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example. For I've given you an example. I've given you an example. I just didn't do it. I've given you an example. This is an example. I'm doing an example. I'm asking you to follow my example. That you should do as I have done to you. That you should do as I have done to you. That when you have an enemy, do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you. If he says most assuredly, and my guess is he means most assuredly. I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than who sent him. If you know these things, 
If you know these things, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do them. And having dipped the bread, and having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately. I wonder if the church is up to doing that with the enemies that we have perceived. I wonder if we would wash feet. I mean, there are people on all sides of the political spectrum that say that they're Christians. Now, I can't know if they are. I don't even know if you guys are Christians. You have no idea if I am. I went and saw the movie The Exorcist. That probably causes some of you to wonder. You're saying, well, Jim, if it had happened in a church, maybe Marty preaching, you walked to an altar, okay, but The Exorcist? What if some of those across the political divide who are believers, what if, what if they came together and said, you know, I disagree with you vehemently on everything that you think about politically. We have no point of relationship politically. But you're my brother or sister in Christ, and I will never attack you. I will always defend you. I can't understand how you believe what you believe. I mean, I'm being honest. I, I'm not going with you where your, your head goes. But you say you love Jesus, I love Jesus, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ. What would happen? What would, what would have happened in a moment in our history if the church did not devour one another, but they turned and served and loved one another? What might have happened at a point in our history? It seems that the only way for the followers of Jesus to discover who the sinners are is to be open to be around them, to go to a feast with them, to join them in their home. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down out of the tree. I'm going to your house for dinner tonight. That's how Jesus thinks. Doing what Jesus did. So they can meet them, talk with them, care for them, and love them. Here's our challenge. The outsiders who become insiders forget what it's like to be an outsider. We're not compassionate any longer. That's what happens. We, we, we've lost the sense of, oh, urgency. We've got, they've got to be saved. One of my friends watched uh, Jesus Revolution and came to me and said, which I didn't take necessarily as a compliment. He said, well, you, you were there, weren't you? Well, yes. But that was also like 100 years ago. <laughs> yes. Let me tell you what it was like at Calvary Chapel. In the tent on the bean field. All we thought about was people going to hell. Now, we didn't think about other things that we should have thought about. But if you're going to err, maybe err on thinking about people going to hell. We constantly thought about Jesus coming back and knew when he does, it's over. And there was a passion, a drive. So when you look at this story, let me ask you, who are you in this story? Are we Matthew? Are we his friends? Are we the religious leaders? Are we the disciples? For Matthew in this story, his call now is to live out Christ's call to a new life. And for his guests, it was to repent and follow the master. He probably became the contact person to these tax gatherers and sinners that came to his party. He probably became the interpreter of Jesus. Who is this guy? Let me tell you. Who is this guy? Let me tell you. For the scribes and the Pharisees, it was to see their own hypocrisy in Christ's unconditional love. Are we Pharisees? I, I, yeah, I'm, thank you, God, I'm not like all these people. Oh, man, I'm so happy I'm not like these people. For the disciples, it was a teachable moment. 
one in which they could experience how Jesus lived in a world filled with darkness while shining light, who would probably go to the Diwali celebration because he would ask someone what this celebration's for, and they would say it's the celebration of light overcoming darkness, it's a celebration of good overcoming evil, and he could have said, I, I am the light. Jim didn't do it. He was upstairs in his sweatpants. We have to be whisking, risking our good reputations for a bad reputation for the sake of the mission. You will lose friends if you love sinners. You will. People that you thought were with you will leave you. We have to decide. 